those dragon scales, and every time that he does, he realizes it's making no effort. It's making no difference. He's not making any progress whatsoever. And then this is what Eustace tells his friends. That that lion begins to put his claws to Eustace's skin. And he tells his friends this, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling that stuff being peeled off. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off. What we discover is that to have who we have been ripped away from us is an incredibly painful process. And sometimes it's God that is actually the one leading us in to that process. The mystery here is, as Tish Harrison Warren states it, suffering doesn't merely happen to us, it works in us. I'm afraid of the dark, she says. But increasingly, I'm more afraid of, miss of missing the kind of beauty and growth that can only be found there. Sometimes our prayers aren't answered the way that we'd like, and sometimes God is silent and seemingly distant from us because he is developing us, because that actually is the best thing for us. Can I tell you that there are some times when I ask my five-year-old to go into his room and to clean his room? And this is the regular response when he steps into that space. There's too much. I don't know where to start. He's overwhelmed. His five-year-old mind is absolutely overwhelmed by the mess that he's stepping into. He falls onto the floor and cries out, I don't know where to begin. Sometimes, I step into his mess and I start cleaning it up with him. And sometimes I don't answer him at all. There are some times that I just let him sit in that space. There are some times that he's just crying for dozens of dozens of minutes, crying. I don't know what to do. I need your help. Tell me where to start. And I don't answer. Because I realize in that moment that what's better for his development in life and knowing that there are going to be more messes that he's going to be navigating, there are going to be more things in his life that he's going to have to learn to handle and carry the weight of in life, that I'm silent. Don't give him a response. And I'm going to use that task at hand as a tool of development. 
Two weeks ago, I made a stupid decision, and I decided I was going to work out by running stairs. <laughs> I, I have yet to recover from it. <laughs> but can you imagine in that moment, as I'm running the stairs, what my, what my muscles would do? If they could speak, what they would be crying out? <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? This makes no sense. And if I could speak to them, I would actually say this ripping and tearing that's happening in your life is actually for your good. This is for your development. And that the pain that you're feeling now is actually because I have greater things ahead for you. I want development. I want development. And as followers of Christ, this is what we realize, that when God is silent, that in these spaces, it has to be a place where I recall his goodness. And I make a point to write out the areas of God's faithfulness that have been expressed to me in the past. That I make it a point to connect with others and to hear their stories about how God is doing something in their lives so that I can get a bigger picture of God at work in the world. I make intentional choices to fast. I make intentional choices to worship. Because what I realize is that while I don't taste the flavor of God's word in my life and his work in my life, he is still sustaining me. And what's happening in these moments is that my roots are going down deeper into God's love. That's actually the work that's at play in my life. And what's happening, in the, why, why, why do roots need to go down deeper? Well, because there is deeper water to be found, and there are storms coming in which those roots need to be down deeper into the soil. And so the typical work that happens as we come out of these times in which, which God leads us into the dark nights of our souls is that usually when we come out of those spaces, we're more attuned to our own brokenness and thus more gracious and patient with others in our lives because we have to come to face to face with our own frailty and weaknesses. I don't have it all figured out. So when others don't have it all figured out, I'm more patient with them. There's a much deeper joy in our lives Because we realize that joy doesn't come from life being perfect and without calamity to it. And we're more okay with not understanding what God is doing because he has shown himself to be faithful even in the darkest of times. The, the last one that I want to take us to is that sometimes our prayers aren't answered the way that we'd like because it's about Jesus. It's for the sake of Christ. My friend and hero, Ken Calvert, says it this way. The thing about calling yourself a servant is that eventually people will start treating you like one. 
one of the most loved and cherished titles that the early church held on to was servant, was slave. That they, that they considered this to be a place of great honor. That, that their life would be used to serve the purposes of God in the lives of others. For them, that's, Paul writes the church that that's where his joy would be made complete. That God would be using his life for the sake of others. Because to be near Jesus is to be influenced by his desire to lay down his life for the sake of others. I forget which one of these books, it was actually it was in Prayer of the Night where um, someone was reflecting on the fact that, that Jesus was terrible at PR. Because what he would, he would do is he'd go out and tell people like that, that to, to, to hold on to your life was to lose it. And that, that we were called to take up our cross. That, that he was going out, what he was selling to the world is that you had to lay down your life. But then they also reflected that while he was terrible at PR, he also drank his own poison. He lived it out. Pete Gregg says there's a divine alchemy at work in all faithful suffering. Because we look back and realize that it was actually our disappointments and not our plaudits that led the Lord that the Lord has transformed to gold. In this passage, Paul tells us that it's for the sake of Christ. It's here in the torment and the calamities and the weaknesses that the power of Jesus is seen. Here is where the mysterious power of God is seen. Jesus redefines power and influence. He doesn't show us his will through forceful control of our lives, but through sacrifice and suffering. That if we want to have influence, that if we want to be a people to, to, to see things change in the world around us, it won't be by having influence the way that we would like to have influence. It isn't by us having more power in the world. It's by us laying down our lives. As Richard Foster then says it, so our question is not why is there suffering in the world, but how do I enter into the suffering that is in the world in a way that is redemptive and healing. Because the victory of Jesus goes through suffering, not around it. So as followers of Christ, we realize that we enter into the suffering of the world. Let me wrap up our time together by reading this 
really long reflection by Richard Foster. It'll come up on the screen. He says this. In one sense, healing prayer is incredibly simple. Like, ask, like a child asking her father for help. In another sense, it is incredibly complex involving the entangled interplay between human and divine, between the mind and the body, between the soul and the spirit, between the demonic and the angelic. As Candace Swanson reminds us, we all live in a fallen world where illness, suffering, and pain are part of the fabric of existence. Sometimes we make a faulty diagnosis of the problem and pray, for example, for physical healing when the real need is emotional healing. Sometimes we neglect the natural means of health, such as diet and exercise and sleep. Sometimes we refuse to see that medicine as one of the ways that God heals. Sometimes we do not pray specifically enough or do not get down to the root of the problem. Sometimes we're not an adequate conduit for the flow of God's love and power. The faith and compassion in us not yet sufficiently developed. Sometimes there's sin in our life that hinders God's work. I could go on. For the reasons healing does not occur are labyrinthine. But whatever the reason, the sad fact is that sometimes we stand face to face with one for whom we prayed and he or she is not well. What are we to do? Well, first of all, let me tell you what we are not to do. Under no circumstance are we to tell those receiving prayer that it is their fault, that they lack the faith, or that there must be some sin in them that is hindering the prayer or any such thing. This will only redouble the burden they must carry. It has been painful enough for them to seek us out. If we must place blame somewhere, let's place it on ourselves as the prayer errs. Perhaps it is our lack of faith or our sin that is hindering the flow of God's grace and mercy. Actually, the matter of blame is simply not the issue. When the disciples got into the blaming game, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, Jesus dismissed their speculations as irrelevant. The simple fact is that we are learning the prayer that heals and there is much we do not understand. Often we must stand under the imponderable mysteries of the divine. On occasion, Jesus' disciples also failed in their attempts at healing prayer. The one thing we are to do is to show compassion, always. The gospel writers frequently mention that Jesus was filled with compassion for people. In one story, a leper came to Jesus begging to be healed. When Jesus looked at the, at the leper, he was moved with compassion. The Hebrew Aramaic roots of compassion are inward parts, what the old King James Version used to call the bowels of mercy. It comes from the same source as the word womb. And so we could speak of the womb-like heart of Jesus which brought healing mercy to the leper. Now Jesus could have kept his distance and commanded the man to be made well, but instead he touched him. Jesus' touch of compassion was comparable to our taking hold of a person with AIDS, stopping the bleeding with our own hands and putting our own life in jeopardy. 
This is the compassion of Jesus. Would you stand with me and we enter into song together?
to them again. This is Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. He returned to the disciples, to the, he returned to them again, and he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open, and they didn't know what to say. When he returned to them the third time, he said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. And there we see the compassionate heart of Jesus. When we don't know what to say, we feel exposed and have no idea how to respond to God, that his response is, have your rest. Have your rest. That he watches over us, that he sits with us, and he is compelled to be with us in the places of our heaviness. Church, before you go, hear this again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Love you, church. Let's spend some time downstairs in the courtyard together.